Today, the global financial markets are more tied together than any time before in history. It seems like everything in the world is moving together. The economies, the financial markets, the medical uh, problems and, and situations that we're dealing with, and so much more. And I talk a lot about the Federal Reserve. The dollar is the reserve currency of the entire world. And so that's why I do that. But today I'm joined by an international guest, somebody who's been to over 65 countries, lived in numerous countries, and can help us tie what's going on on in the United States with the rest of the world and give us that international perspective when it comes to real estate in other countries, um, economies, jobs, etc. And understanding this perspective helps us to get a much more complete picture of where we're at currently, but what to expect in the very near future and even how to prepare. Uh, he gives us a lot of that good information. I'm joined by Neil McCoy Ward. Um, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am joined by Neil McCoy Ward. He's a he's a businessman. He's CEO of a group of companies that are in the real estate market, but he's probably more better known as a macro financial market analyst on YouTube. Um, talks about a lot of the topics that I talk about, but with an international um, kind of outlook on it. So I'm super excited to talk to you today, Neil. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you're most uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I know uh, you know you you do a lot of different things as as we've talked about, um, but you have this unique outlook. Uh, you've lived abroad, you know, international. You've lived in the United States. Um, why don't you just give us like a little bit of background on on you and, and what you're doing right now to give us that perspective? Yeah, so I mean, just before we jumped on and, and recorded this, I was saying I'm in Playa del Carmen in uh, Mexico right now, and before that, I was in Costa Rica, different places from Tamarindo to you know, San Jose, et cetera. Uh, before that, I was in Florida, before that in Kentucky and California. So I, I tend to travel a lot. I mean, this is my 68th country now. I've been trying to stay out of the UK and uh, the US as much as possible at the moment with everything just going on. You know, a lot of, if, if people are watching your channel, then I don't need to censor what I say here, but there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. And it's, yeah. it's, and, you know, like, like yourself, a student of history, when I look at everything that's happening, all the patterns and trying to link it together, the developments that I'm seeing are very worrying to me. So I just wanted to be away from that for a little bit, just so I can observe from the outside. Because when you're in it, it's like most things you, you don't see, you have these blind spots, you don't see what's going on, you don't see the development and how rapid things are happening. So that's where I am right now. Um, still doing my day job. Um, you know, as a CEO of the forward thinking group, still do that three days a week, used to be six days a week, obviously with everything that's happened over the last year, that's gone down. So running the YouTube channel and all the other platforms and, and things like that, that I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I know we, we are seem to be looking at a lot of the same things. Um, as you said, you know, people on my channel know we're, we're dealing with a lot of crazy stuff. And so um, I see that we're both kind of seeing the same events happening, like I said, but maybe from a little bit different angles. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to dig into those things today. Uh, like I said, with maybe a little bit more of a global fa uh, flair to it. And I know um, specifically, what, let's start, you know, just talking about the, the macro financial picture overall. And I spent a lot of time talking about the Federal Reserve, um, the dollar. It's the reserve currency of the world and it drives the world markets. But at the same time, there's lots of other things going on out there in the world. So uh, maybe just give us kind of this uh, global macro picture that you see right now with, you know, inflation running uh, at, at, a, at a sky high rate, you know, debt levels at levels that, you know, seem like they're, you know, can't really go any higher. Uh, kind of what's your, what's your overall look and see how things are going right now? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned about um, inflation there, because just before jumping on this video, I was just looking through my comments on my YouTube channel and someone said, oh, you called it 15 months ago. So I was like, what? And, you, you know, the timestamp. And I forgot I'd said this, but 15 months ago, when the QE started the, the quantitative easing and all the trillion, you know, the, all the money print, currency printing, not yeah. money printing. <laughs> I don't like to say the word money printing because it isn't money printing. They, in fact, they don't even print. They, they create it digitally. But I went back and looked. And what I said in that video was that for every round of QE they do, give it 12, 18 months, and you're going to see um, an equivalent rate of inflation going into the, the monetary supply because that is how it works. And again, we get into these arguments with does QE get into the money supply and things like that? Yes, uh, for the most part, it does. You know, we, we could go back and forth and, and debate that. But sometimes these YouTubers, they say, none of this QE gets into the currency supply. Well, let me just give you an example. How can you print, or, you know, and it was printing all of the, the, the currency and then giving stimulus to people and all the other the benefits and packages that, that happened over the last year. So people actually get the dollars in their hand. How can people say that is not QE getting into the, the economy? Obviously it is. I don't know where you know, people get, get these ideas from, but this is what's going in. So what we're seeing now in terms of the inflation, I've been tracking for a long, long time. My opinion hasn't really changed on it. The inflation is going to keep going on as well, but I don't see hyperinflation. Yes, it could happen if um, you get to that point where the Federal Reserve say, okay, we've got two options. We're in a liquidity trap. We either keep doing QE and keep it going, but there's even a limit to QE, as, as you know, or they raise interest rates. There aren't really that many other options. Although, what do we have? We have this wild card right now, which is the CBDC. I've seen that you've talked about it a lot on your channel. Sure. The CBDC is an interesting one. And right now I have theories on what might happen, what it might look like, but I don't think anyone can see with absolute certainty exactly what's going to happen there. But there's a lot of concern in developments that I have around the CBDC. How's it going to run? Will there be social credit scores like they've been trialing in, in China? You know, what, what, how's this going to look? Are they going to run it concurrently with a, you know, a US dollar as it is today? And then what's going to happen with all the other currencies pegged to the dollar? How they, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions that remain unanswered. Yeah. But in terms of how I see the, the global economy right now, we're all interlinked. You know, the, the US can't do something without other, other countries having to do something with their currencies as well. This is the advent of globalization. Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin, and you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the, the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin 
Now, as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. Yeah. And I think the next time we have a crisis, is going to be even bigger than the last crisis because of the interconnectivity with all of the, the countries and the banks now. Yeah. Well, um, the next crisis, I, we're still in it. <laughs> it's not going away. So uh, it looks like yeah, I saw yeah. today, um, uh, shoot, I, I want to say it was the health minister of Iceland. One of those countries over there said that, uh, that even with their population 75%, um, already got the jab, we'll call it that. Um, mm, they yeah. still see that these restrictions will remain in place somewhere between five up to 15 years. That's what they said mm -hmm. today. Um, but anyway, um, so, you know, in the United States, I know, uh, you know, about 35% of all the dollars in existence were created in the last 12 months. And so if you inflate the money supply by 30%, then you would expect prices to go up by about 30%. And we have, right? Home prices are up 24%, um, at, you know, on the year. Um, some prices are up like lumber, 300%. And so it's a little bit different. Um, how have well, you actually, seen Actually, can I just jump in on that? Yeah, point, please. Matt? So the lumber went up 300%. Not for all the reasons people were talking about. They're saying, oh, you know, it was this reason, that reason, and supply. Part of it was supply, but part of it was manipulation on the futures contracts, mm -hmm. which no one seems to know about. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why, but no one, but this is what it was. It was just more manipulation, like we see in the silver market and precious metals and all of them. It's pure manipulation. And now, so yes, it was at 300%. Now it's back down to 70% as we've had all the, you know, um, and I'll tell you another thing. Some of the mills, I like to, you know, do this sort of in-depth research and look yeah. at this and sometimes call up people. They were saying that they couldn't get the supply out. Like it wasn't a, a case of they had no supply. It was stacked up and people like funds had bought this, um, this lumber and they were just saying, we'll pay you X amount to store it because they're making money on all the contracts. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a case that there was this big supply shortage. They just couldn't get the timber in to, to actually deal with it. So there's a lot more to that, that than meets the eye. And of course, now we've had all the supply coming back through. So number still up 70%. This has a knock on on house building, new house building. What have we seen? 19.1%, I think it was announced this week, um, down on the new, new, new home sales and all this. Everything is interconnected. It's like a giant spider web of, of globalization. And another thing with the timber that was just talked about this week is now we're having these, you know, these huge forest fires just ripping through the US. And now they're concerned this is going to have an impact on, on timber going forward as well. It's, you know, we're living in a crazy world right now. Yeah, it is all connected. It's interesting to see how that works. Um, and so, you know, we see all those prices going up. And like I said, I, I kind of focus on that in the United States. But um, are we seeing, I mean, I, are we seeing that throughout the world, through the UK, through Europe? I mean, prices on all these things are going up, used car prices, home prices, mm -hmm. lumber prices. Is this a global thing? Yeah, de definitely. In fact, the US hasn't even got the brunt of this inflation. You go to some of the, the countries in Africa, you go to, to Venezuela, you go to Lebanon and some other places. Now, of course, each one is an island in itself in that you can't just take it as a whole. There's other things going on in terms of hyperinflation in some of those places. 
But yeah, look at food prices. If you go, you could go to some countries in Africa now, and there's so many that I can't even name them all. And the food prices, some of them have doubled or more. I mean, you're talking about 100% inflation in food prices, not 10% like we're, or, 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 you know, around that. It depends on the, the food product, of course. And you can't rely on the CPI because they swap out the different food products and put other ones in that are lower. Yeah. Uh, why do they do that? Because you've got to think of it like this. If they tell the true figures on the CPI, what's connected to the CPI, the pensions, is all the money there in the pensions to cover the pensions? I don't think so. I think it's somewhere else. So again, it's all connected. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we definitely know the money's not there. Um, so we have all these prices going up. And then we have um, that, you know, those are asset, that's asset inflation, that's consumer good and prices inflation. Um, but then we have, you know, problems where uh, I think both of us have kind of dug into this, where we have worker shortages all across. I know mm-hmm. I've been traveling quite a bit as you have. Um, and uh, I recently spent uh, two weeks in Florida going around different places. And many of the hotels I stayed at had to cut down all their services. They couldn't open yeah. at capacity. They didn't have room service. They couldn't open their restaurant just because they didn't have workers, um, which then causes um, employers to have to raise their prices or I'm sorry, the rates they pay, which then leads to more inflation. Um, yeah. What are your, what's your take on this worker shortages and you know the government paying people not to work? Yeah. Well, if, if you'll allow me, I'd like to talk on another point with that as well, which is unemployment scarring. So we'll talk about unemployment scarring um, directly after this. So what I see with the the worker shortage, all of these bailouts that some of the companies got last year that were supposed to be for, you know, the the pandemic related, um, you know, economy and, and, you know, helping things along. A lot of these companies took that money, that bailout money, and they did share buybacks with the money. What should they have done? Research and development, staff training, helping their employees. The bedrock of any company is your employees. You've got to look after your employees. And unfortunately, what we've seen, especially in the United States, it's not as predominant in other other countries, but it still exists. In the United States, a lot of the, because you have the lobbyists and all this, you know, there's a lot of corruption, although we can't call it corruption, of course, but there is all this lobbying and everything else that goes on. It doesn't create this free market economy. So you have all of these huge companies, these monopolies that are just growing, growing, growing. And then you have all the small business owners, the SMEs, small to medium-sized enterprises that have been crashing and going bankrupt in the economy. And this is really where we, we, we move on to unemployment scarring. So a lot of people don't understand this, but 60%, some 70%, it, it depends on the country, of employees are employed by the SMEs, the small to medium-sized enterprises, businesses. So when you have this huge crash in these businesses and these huge bankruptcies, what actually happens is you lose those employees. So they, you know, they, they lose their jobs, things like that. Where does most of the spending into GDP come from? From consumer spending. I mean, this is just basics, very common sense stuff. So if these people don't have a job anymore, how can they spend into the economy and boost the GDP? See, I don't even think the GDP was genuine, what came out last year. Because what they included into the GDP was all the stimulus and everything else that they created. Yeah. And then you've got to think when that stimulus went to people's hands, they then spent that stimulus. What was that recorded in? GDP. So you've got a lot of stuff going on here, which yeah. I think is going to cause a crisis very soon because people are just saying, I quit from their jobs. 
And I know a lot of people who had to work through this last year, and yet their co-workers were sat at home, not having to work. And, you know, we make this sort of joke that they're sat there drinking a beer, watching Netflix for a year. But obviously that isn't what, what, what people were doing. A lot no, they're all watching HBO instead, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of what they've been doing is learning new skills. And here's the problem. And, and again, it's a problem for employ- employers, not for you know, individuals like us, free thinking people. When you get a lot of time, human psychology, what it is, we start to think. When you're running around like a headless chicken, driving an hour to work or on a train or whatever, working stressful job all day, traveling back, all you do is get home, you're exhausted. And you do that five, six days a week. There's no way you can think and get freedom of thought and, and figure out what you want to do with your life. So when you get this free time to think and relax, you start to realize what's really important to you, combined with you know, what happened at the start where you know, the health organizations or whatever are saying, this could be a 5 to 6% death rate from, from COVID and things like that. Right, and, you, right. and look, I was one of the first people to, to, to be like, oh my goodness, this is really, really bad, 5 to 6%. That is not, you know, that's no joke. And of course, when all the lockdowns happened, I wasn't the one saying, we shouldn't be doing these lockdowns. This is a terrible idea, et cetera. I was agreeing with it. I'm saying, okay, that was a good decision. Five, 6% death rate. We, we can't have this. This is just, you know, it's a bad, bad situation. But then when everything comes out and the true statistics come out, it's a case of, okay, you can't just look at one measurability here. You also have to look at things on the other side. You have to look at mental health and suicide rates and um, the business collapses, which is proven from previous recessions. If you actually look at you know, previous recessions and the data, you, you see what goes up mental health rates, um, problems, suicides, uh, yeah. business collapses, unemployment. It all has a knock-on effect. So look, I'm not saying anything you know, negative against any of your viewers that you know, are like hardcore into all of this and <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. And yeah. What I'm really saying is, You've got to be objective and you've got to look at everything and then make decisions, uh, especially economic decisions. Um, Things are not an island. You can't just take it um, as it is. And of course, that's where the media comes in and we won't get into all of that. Yeah. I'm curious. uh, This wasn't uh, I'm I'm curious your take on this coming from the UK and now uh, being in the US as well. But you know, the U.S. was uh, built on individualism. And it's really, um, we get caught up in all these uh, words, and, and I think words lose their meaning, and socialism and fascism and communism and capitalism and authoritarianism and whatever. Um, but really, if we were just going to make it simple, you kind of just have like two systems, and it's like individualism or collectivism or, um, mm-hmm. you know, free, open, competitive versus like captured, controlled, planned Um but, you know, uh, there's this whole narrative that's really being pushed globally, which is uh, we're all in this together. The reality is that none of us are ever in anything together, right? We're always in this differently. So, for example, um, a few months ago, I had to have some surgery on my hip and um, mm. I went to my doctor and he sat me down and he said, here's your options. You have this option, but because of your age and because of the condition, you know, these are the risks that you face. Um, or we could try this and these are the options and these are the risks. And so what, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, given my life and what I want to do, I know this is a better option, but I'd rather do this. And I'd rather take these risks, but it's up to me because of my age and my health and my activity level, which is going to be different than yours. 
Like you yeah. and I don't face the same situation. Uh, you know, the doctor typically always tell you to stay home, stay off of it. But like, that may not be an option for me. I may need to go to work. And so the risk of re-injuring it might be less than the risk of me losing everything if I don't go to work. Uh, mm. but, but then this other person might have a bunch of money and they might have savings. And so for them, the risk of, of going back to work and re-injuring isn't worth it, right? And so we're all in this together. So back to, I, I guess, what you posed, I guess, uh, how, how do you see that as far as like individualism and looking at this, uh, you know, how it affects us personally, knowing that there's all these unintended consequences out there? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the simple answer to that is, there is no simple answer to to these um, to these challenges today. And, and you know, I've read all the books from these professors who have spent their whole life studying psychology and human behavioral psychology, evolutionary psychology, and I've read all the books on neuroscience and everything you can think of. And the conclusion I came to was it was really a waste of my time to study all that because there is no answer to it. And the reason why is because as human beings, we're constantly developing in terms of our thought process, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's offensive, what's not offensive. But if you look at some of the developments, they come from one source and one source only, and it's the mainstream media. So of course, in a, and it's quite funny because yesterday I was reading about censorship and you know someone said to me, and I thought they were talking a load of nonsense, but they said, the USA is the most free country in terms of the media in the world. And I said, I, you know, are you, have you been smoking something? You know? yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so I looked it up on all these different reports. And on average, it was about, it ranked about 45 in the world in terms of free media. Hmm. So it really had me start looking into it and looking at the media and quite staggering how, you know, I think it's 85 or 86% of the funding they get comes from one source at the moment. And then it starts to make me look at other areas and gives me a lot of concern. But I don't personally see the media in the US as free media. A lot of it, I don't know if you saw my video a few weeks ago, but I showed a clip of, because of, I kept, people kept talking about the media is free and all this. And I was like, okay, let me show you a clip. And it said, we don't need to show you, tell you that gas prices are on the rise. We don't need to tell you. And it was all these different um, anchors saying the exact same thing. It went on for ages, you know. Yeah. I didn't see that one, but I've stuff. seen things similar to that. Yeah. And it just shows that a lot of the media is owned by the, the same company. So, of course, what do they want? They want to create. And, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, although I think it's a bad thing at the moment. Right. But you've got to draw the line between what is control and what is genuinely concern. See, if, if we had amazing leaders everywhere around the world and they were genuinely incredible human beings, integral, there's no scandals, there's, there's nothing like that. And they said, we need to do X in order to, you know, do solve this challenge. I'm down with that. I'm completely happy with it. And if they're getting all these experts in and they're saying, you know, and it's a free debate and it's open, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. But then when you have all on one side, I think that's, that can be quite um, detrimental and, and negative. Yeah. So as somebody that spends a lot of time going through the news, uh, obviously you do that, analyzing the markets, coming up with ideas for your videos, researching, et cetera. Um, it's, it's, it can be difficult to understand, or I should say discern the information that you're looking at. Um, I guess, do you have any things that you do that you think that are beneficial or helpful for you to like 
um, look at both sides or make decisions for yourself or look past headlines? Yeah, I think the first thing you have to, you know, every single person has to do when you're looking at, at media is number one, you have to apply your own common sense. That is the best thing that you can ever do is apply your own common sense. If something just doesn't sound right, spend the time looking into it, spend the time studying. And, you know, so for me, yes, it involves a lot of investment in, of time and effort at the start, but you then figure out who is just making stuff up and who's just putting out propaganda versus who's actually putting out some genuine stories. Now, I like the media that's very central. I don't like media on the, on the right. I don't like media on the left because they will, even if it's the most absurd thing ever, they will put it out as if it's a fact. So I, I tend to look at all the media on the left, on the right. I see what they're talking about, but I much prefer central, central media where they don't really take a position either way. It's more factual based. Now, the other thing is a lot of media right now is about emotion. So they're using emotional spikes yeah. to, um, you know, to, to create whatever they want to create. Now, I don't really look at that. When I see that, I can see through the emotion because I've, I've studied it all. So I don't want to, I don't want to get into any of that. I want to see facts. And, right. you know, there was a good example a few months ago where, you know, we saw certain statistics come out and someone's actually said to me, it doesn't matter about the statistics. It's all about how people feel about the statistics. And that really surprised me. And I realized, okay, and a lot of people liked the comment and I thought, I see what's happening. This has created this mass um, thought patterns within, within different populations now. And it's, it's regional as well. So the thought patterns will be that people start to align within different groups now, regardless of whether, you know, someone's on the left or someone's on the right, because, you know, you know, a lot of people attack people on the left constantly, but at the same time, there's people on the right as well, who come out with the most absurd things. And, you know, I'm very, and I'll, I'll say to anybody, whether you're on the left or the right, you know, if they're, they're talking some absurd stuff, I want to bring it back to factual um, evidence-based data. And I think that's the important thing. Statistics um, haven't, they're not dead, like a lot of media want you to believe, and it's all about emotion now. No, it's not about emotion. It is about statistics come first, in my opinion, with everything. And then we look at, you know, other things afterwards. Yeah, that's a, such a great point. I mean, they they really have tried to take everything from being a rational uh, conversation or argument or point to emotional. Uh, you you can overcome a rational conversation, but you can't overcome an emotional one. And so I think that's definitely a good point is like, check that emotion. Um, now let's jump back into some of the topics that I had kind of planned. So I know um, both of us have been kind of looking at and talking about like this, you know, great reset agenda, which a lot of this seems to be going into. So if we, if we look at it from a larger context, we have, um, we have a group of people who, you know, are kind of pulling the strings in the world. These are the, the globalists. This is the, the three-letter NGOs, the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, et cetera. Um, but they're telling us what their plan is. Um, I like mm. to say that I take them at their word. And so they've told them, they've told us what their plan is. Um, and I know you've done videos on this as well. We don't need to dig deep into that. But when you when you look at it from that lens of these people that have this agenda by 2030, um, and then you look at that, you know, uh, the, the financial system, the, the economy, the real estate market, um, does it make you start to think that, you know, this is all part of their bigger plan and then we have to learn to navigate it that way? That's a tough one because 
I'm an emotional human being like everybody else. Sure. So, and it's very difficult when a lot of the stories that come out every day are emotional. It's difficult to always be rational. So for me to say I have no bias in answering the question would would not be a true statement. Obviously, I have bias, just like you have bias, Mark. We all have bias towards something. So I'm going to answer the question, but but with the with that variable that there is a bias there. Sure. So having studied all of it and studied WEF and, and everyone else, and, and actually there's hundreds of these three and four letter organizations now. And actually, when you dig into it deep, so I did one of the first videos on the, the Great Reset, as you know, and that video got banned. It hit 800,000 views and it, it got banned very quickly because I guess I was touching too much on, on uh, some truths there about, you know, some of the propaganda, and it is propaganda, oh, anyone can come to our forums and, you know, whatever. And then you look at the figures and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to a million dollars to become a member. And you're like, no, the average person can't join. This is nonsense. Who are the sponsors? And it's the usual suspects. And of course, the most obvious thing we need to distinguish here is that the World Economic Forum talks a lot about how this is a green energy movement and to help save the planet. I'm not saying that that isn't true. All I'm saying is when you look at the evidence behind it and you look at the sponsors, so these are huge um, banks and financial organizations, and they're all coming for a meeting. Why, where's all the green, green you know, movement people for these meetings? Yeah. Why is it all banks? I'm, I'm, and you've got to think, what is a conglomerate, a financial institution, a bank, a business? They exist purely for the purpose of shareholder profit. That's it. Why right. would the shareholders care about green, a green energy movement and reducing CO2 and carbon emissions? All I'm saying is if that is what they're putting out there, it's only going to fool a number of people. You, you know, if that if it's true that they are trying to, you know, bring down all, all of this, you know, greenhouse gases and everything, don't invite all financial institutions and then close the doors. Like have it open with green energy. Do you get what I'm saying with yeah, this? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this and, is, uh, yeah, bring, bring some, bring some scientists in or whatever that, that uh, have some solutions instead of all the bankers flying in on their private jets, <laughs> I guess. What you're yeah. Saying. To cut down, to cut down CO2 emissions. Yeah. <laughs> flying on private jets. Yeah. But it seems like there's like all this change going on. And I know a lot of people are worried about this whole, you know, 2030, you'll own nothing. Um, and then you see that like 2030, you own nothing. And I get comments all the time, like, um, how would they achieve that? Um, how would they get it to the point where we own nothing? But then you take a look at um, the financial markets and the housing markets and the job markets, and then it starts to look um, somewhat apparent, right? Well, if they can just continue to boom and bust and um, take away our jobs and take away our ability to um, make our payments and pay our workers, et cetera, then um, all of a sudden you start to see how that future could become a reality, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is very worrying. I try you know, what I, what I do with things like that, I look at it and I keep it as a theory and I keep it off to the side as a worst case scenario. But then what I have is other theories in, in between. And I try and take something middle ground, but I never take my eye off this theory that it could happen, you yeah. know, because if you take your eye off the ball, that's when you get caught out. So I've always got my eye on that, but I try and think of something more middle ground, but people who are, you know, more to the other side who say, there's no, cons you know, this is all conspiracy. There's nothing behind this. There's no central bank digital currency coming out, Neil and Mark. You guys are making this stuff up. And then next yeah. thing, they announce it and they're like, you know, you go, oh, didn't you say there was no 
Yeah. They, yeah. But a, a broken, they use a broken clocks right twice a day and they use things like that. You know, these ridiculous expressions that they come out with. Hey, sorry to interrupt this video. Just one more time. I'm not running Google ads. So it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it. All right. I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below, how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. Yeah. Now, um, another thing that I want to jump into, I know, I, I know you've talked about is, um, you know, more things that are happening like these cyber attacks. And so um, that goes back into, you know, the World Economic Forum has, has been doing um, tests for cyber attacks. Of course, uh, we see that these ransomware attacks have been picking up steam. Um, just, I think, was it just a couple of days ago or just last week, um, a bunch of the big websites all across the world shut down. Mm. Um and I know you've done quite a bit of research into that. So what are you seeing in, in regards to cyber attacks and how do we prepare for those types of things? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that we're going to see more cyber attacks. Now, one of the videos I made recently was about the World Economic Forum's risk report. So what I did was I didn't just look at the 2021. I went back and looked at 2020 and, and other reports. And it's very interesting. Either they've got a crystal ball or they are absolute geniuses, but they tend to predict a lot of what's going to happen before it does. Like yeah. event 201 happened two months before the outbreak, you know, right. and this isn't conspiracy for those people who are going to drop all the ridiculous comments or conspiracy, you know, no, it's a fact event 201 occurred two months before the crisis, right? you know, and this wasn't a, oh, this could be a, we're preparing for a SARS, we're preparing for a flu outbreak. No, it was a you know what, we won't yes. say the word on the channel, yeah. outbreak. And then you look at all the other things. And then when all the media gets focused on these cyber attacks, again, it's controlled. This isn't just random. So when, you know, he, Klaus Schwab is talking about, oh, cyber attacks is the biggest threat. You think I'm just sitting there saying, oh, this, no, I'm just going to ignore that. No, I'm, I'm looking at that and saying, this is the biggest threat. If he's saying that, then that means this is the biggest threat right now because a lot of what he says is coming true. And that's very, very worrying. So I'm, I'm definitely looking at that. And actually that video you're, you're referencing that I made recently, the very next day was the biggest cyber attack that had ever taken place, which was across all, it was actually on the media outlets as well around the world. Um, really the UK government's website was taken down, all these cyber attacks. Now, you could say it could be a false flag. I don't know where they say, look, we were, we were attacked ourselves. And, um, you know, who knows, who knows what's really going on? I don't, I don't know, but it is worrying. And I do think we're going to see more cyber attacks. And the risk with the cyber attacks is 
on infrastructure. That is what I think is the biggest risk, because if a hospital gets, you know, uh, the electricity goes out, yes, they're going to have backup generators and things like that. But what about the water pumps? What about the water stations? Human beings can only survive for three days without, without water. Um, you know, there's, there's all this other stuff that could happen. What if you see a flash crash in the stock market because of all the AI trading that goes on and all the other you know, trading that goes on? You could just see a massive flash crash occur, which could bring down the stock market. What happens if the stock market comes down? People lose their jobs. A lot of it is, again, big knock-on effect. You really think it's not going to have a knock-on effect on the housing market? Yeah. Yeah, it is obviously. So um, talking about the housing market for a minute, um, I just did a video uh, talking about the United States housing market and I, and I, and I do them pretty regularly. Um, having been a, a, a pretty much a, my career has been in real estate investing, um, but I don't know a lot about the international markets. Um, so, you know, in the United States, we know the real estate market's up, you know, 25% year over year. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the market's super hot, you know, multiple offers on properties before they even get open for, for viewing. Um and at the same time, you know, we have the economy that's shaky. Um, so a lot of people are wondering what's going to happen here. But what about um, the foreign markets? What about Australia? Uh, I get asked that all the time. What about Canada? What about the UK? Are those real estate markets just as hot? And do you think they're in just as much danger? Yeah, 100%. So they're not... Okay, so they're all different in terms of the year-on-year growth. USA was pretty pretty um, hot this year. You know, there's no way around that. Why is that? Well, because of globalization, we can apply the same metrics to each market. So what happened in the USA, record low interest rates creates more buyers, because if you can get an interest rate for 3% and you can, let's say, you know, like you said, you're a real estate investor, you can get a 6 7 8% or 15% if you're doing an Airbnb or, or something as some people do. Yeah. Why would you not borrow money at 3% when you don't have to put a lot down anyway? What else are you going to do with your money? Leave it in the bank while inflation's eating away at the capital and the purchasing power? No, people are going in, they're rushing into these markets. Right. So that's one fundamental. The other one is low inventory. And this again was created by fear and, and, and panic over the last year. People didn't want other families and people walking around their house and, yep. and all of that sort of stuff. So you had these low inventory levels. And now the knock-on effect of that low inventory is more low inventory, even though right. we're recovering, because it created this housing price increase. A lot of people don't want to sell. They're, they're saying, I'm just going to keep that as a rental now because it's just keep going up. It's going to be my pension. I'm going to buy a different house and get 2.49% interest rate. You know, right. So all of this is going up. Red tape around home building, where you are, you're in California. Look at yeah. Los Angeles. You try and build something in L.A., Good luck. Um, yeah. it's, it's so difficult. And even if you do, you've got to put a parking space on. How, how can you make a good profit on that? Yeah. Right? So there's all of these things going on. Now, you take that format and you apply it to the UK, to Canada, to Australia, to New Zealand. Some of the hottest housing markets in the world in terms of overvaluation, I would say, are, are all the ones we talked about, especially New Zealand, especially Canada, places like Toronto and, you know, et cetera. These are so overheated and people argue with me over it when I say that it's, it's only a matter of time before you do see a major correction. But what's gonna, how's that going to come about? There's different ways. People say it will only come about with interest rates uh, going up. That's not strictly true. 
because with anything, there is always, always a market cap in terms of affordability. And I don't think we're too far off that in terms of affordability unless they drop the interest rates even lower. So as you know, people don't buy a house with cash these days. You're not going to go out and buy an average price home with yeah. cash. You're going to get on a monthly payment. Well, what happens if you know the house keeps going up in value constantly, 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 and you've got this amount for a monthly payment, but the house has gone up in value? you can't still afford that same house. And this is why you see the concentration first of the, the challenges in the smaller starter homes, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ones that are 1,500 square foot and below. This right. is where you see the challenges first start to come in in these homes. And we're already seeing that now in terms of an affordability crisis for these people. A lot of people are priced out in the markets in the um, more expensive states, and it will ripple across then you'll see it going into second, third homes, you know, growing families, things like that. So you will see an affordability crisis eventually. But then like what happened in the UK, the UK said, we're going to do this special program where, you know, first time buyers don't have to put much down at all. It's just a few percent. And, you know, and, and they're doing all these programs um, to, to help the market and help people get in. Well, they did all these programs back in 2005 and six as well. It didn't help. It just overheated the markets even more. Right. So, so these are the, the, the three main things that you have in all housing markets around the world. And some of them are even just exploding up a lot more than 25% as well, where they've got high inflation, people are trying to buy houses. And, you know, so, so there's a lot going on. Yeah, I guess when I look at you know the the United States housing market specifically, um, it's really being backstopped by the Federal Reserve. So they're buying mortgage-backed yeah. securities to prop that up, providing lots of liquidity, lots of loans, et cetera, um, and keeping the rates low at the same time. I ask myself, what's going to happen with the real estate market? I mean, it seems that it's overheated. Although to your point, the monthly payments actually have come down. The affordability is there, um, but we do have this all these people that haven't been making payments. So there's all this forbearance that's out there, but the Fed could just extend it another year. They could extend it five more years. They could continue mm -hmm. to buy mortgage-backed securities or they could not. <laughs> and the problem is we don't know what's in a person's head, right? We could maybe mm -hmm. read the, what the market's doing, but we don't know what's in their head. My thought process is they, the, they, you know, the Fed, between the Fed and the government, monetary and fiscal stimulus was about $8 trillion over the last year mm -hmm. to prevent the markets from crashing. Why would they spend $8 trillion just to let it go now? So it seems like why wouldn't they just continue that? And so my bet is that they do. Um, but I don't know if those same dynamics work in Canada, Australia, or the UK. Yeah, well, well. <clears throat> Actually, most, pe most of the other countries, you've got to think they're pegged to the dollar. And um, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter if they're pegged, it's irrelevant. Well, okay, if, that's, if it's irrelevant and you keep printing dollars, like trillions and trillions, what happens to the export prices of those other countries? You see, they've right. got to do their own QE programs or they're going to, the pricing is not going not gonna to match. You know, the USA, people, are, you know, it's the most globalized country in terms of, what do you export? Dollars. What do you import? Goods and services from other countries. So that's what's going on um, with, with the USA. Now, I have a different theory, and it's very different to most people I, I know. So you may not agree with this, Mark, and that's okay. We can, we can discuss it. Yeah. I actually think in terms of interest rates, QE, et cetera, I do think they're going to start tapering. And I think they're probably going to start in 2022. I don't know when. I have no idea what month or, or anything like that. 
But I think they're probably going to come down from the 120, 120 billion. I think they're probably going to taper it down by, say, 10 billion roughly per month. And they'll do it over a one year period. Now, will they go down to zero? I don't think so. I think they're still going to do some. Maybe it could be 10, 20, 30. Who knows? They could go down to zero. They could. But the challenge is, look what they tried to do a couple of months ago, I think it was, with the MBS, the mortgage-backed securities. They tried to sell off some of the MBS. And did you see what happened? They quickly reversed it and they were like, okay, buy them back, buy them back. So what is it? 54% of all mortgages in the United States are now owned or controlled by the Federal Reserve, a private institution owned by shareholders that is neither federal nor reserve of capital. Right. And that's very worrying. I want to recommend a book to all of your subscribers, actually, called Lords of Finance. Mm-hmm. It is such an incredible book. And if they actually read that, they'll under- and it's a hard read. If you're not a reader, forget it, But because uh, it's a really hard read and it's really hard going. But it explains everything that happened in previous crises, how the Fed was you know, came about who the four key players were, you know, with the Bank de France, the, um, you know, the, um, the Bank of England, the Fed, New York Fed, and uh, the Reichsbank in, in Germany. And, you know, it talks about all this stuff. And it's really crucial because when you look at these patterns of, of history and what's occurred, and especially the 08 crisis, which is a sort of template that I'm using for this crisis and what I think is going to happen. Um, but let me get back on point. So I think the, the QE, they're going to taper it down. Now, will they raise interest rates? I think if they're going to raise interest rates, they're going to do something similar to, that they did before, and it will be 25 basis points. So 0.25%. They could even do 0.1%. Who knows this time around? Right. But if they try and do something severe, I mean, this is not, Jerome Powell is not Paul Volcker who in 79 through to 81, you know, rates went from 11 to, what was it, 20%? I think he just bumped them up to. They're not the same same person. And in today's market and day and age, they're going to bankrupt the US government. There wasn't $30 trillion trillion of debt back then. (laughs) No, there wasn't. There wasn't. Um, You know, so we have, we have, I don't even know what I was was going with that, but I'll let you jump back in, Mark. (laughs) Well, no, I just, I mean, in in Paul Volcker's day, I mean, he raised interest rates, but they didn't have $30 trillion of debt. So you can't do that today when you have $30 trillion of debt. It's it's unmanageable. Uh, Trying to cover the interest on the debt already as it is, is almost impossible. So the chance of of them doing that is is, uh, basically zero at this point. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, what's the other option? You know, what's the other option? If they don't, or do they just keep doing QE? Well, then if they keep doing QE, you will see a, a case of, of hyperinflation. There, there is no other option. You either, you, know, you, you either raise interest rates, you keep doing QE. There isn't really much of a middle ground. The stock market's going to sniff it out. That's what they're trying to do, you see. They're trying there's to a third, there's the a third scarier option. There, there is a third scarier option, and they can control inflation with price fixing. And we've seen that's yeah. usually one of the last stages that a government goes through before things really start to fall apart. So you look at countries like yeah. Argentina or Venezuela, that's how they try to prevent that inflation. Uh, they can't stop yeah. printing money, but the inflation's killing them. So the next stage is then the price fixing. Yeah. But, you know, you can go back to, we can go back to the times of the Roman empire where they did price fixing. It, it doesn't work. It, oh, as you know, it, it never works. No. And, you know, it got to the point there where they were taxing the farmers and the blacksmith and, you know, or, you know the innkeeper, 90%. What happened? People just walked away from their farms. 
you know, it, it, it can get to that point again, but I hope it wouldn't. You know, I just hope that we get really good leadership over the next couple of years. But with the way politics is controlled, I just don't, I just don't see it coming. Usually, if you look at periods of history, the thing that changes situations like we're in right now, where you might have a, a, lot, you know, a very large percentage of the people, even though they won't admit it, you know, I speak to people every day and they'll be acting one way. But when I speak to them privately, they actually don't agree with a lot of the stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've tend to found is, is true with nine out of 10 people. They will pretend that they agree with, you know, everything that's, that's going on, but they don't really. Yeah. So if you actually look at, you know, uh, this as a whole, people will walk away if the government starts overtaxing people and capital gains tax and, and everything else. Yep. You get to these really high rates, people will just stop working or they'll walk away from it. And, I, and I'm a, a prime example of this. My tax rate is so exceptionally high in the UK. So I get taxed in my businesses and that's you know 20%, 19% corporation tax. I then have to pay a, a sales tax on top because a lot of the costs I can't pass on, or even if I do pass on you know, in terms of the sales tax, well, I could have charged a higher price anyway. You know, so all of these, and that's another 20% sales tax we pay. And then you've got to pay the tax on the employees. You've got to pay a a tax to the local government on premises and things like that. Already you're losing half your money in taxes in a UK business. And then you want to take dividends. Oh, guess what, Neil, you're going to have to pay 40% on your dividends. Oh, you want to take a salary. Oh, you're going to pay 45% on your salary. Once you get to these levels, and then I want to spend my money. Oh, now I've got to pay 20% sales tax on my spending. Once you get to these levels, like for me, for example, I, I could do a lot more. I could earn a lot more money and do a lot more investments. But I just think, what's the point? I would rather have the enjoyment of life and travel and things like that than I would to earn you know, even more money than I do right now. And this links back to your question you asked earlier about employees and, and the jobs market. This is what people are seeing right now, Mark. You know, they're, they're saying to themselves, I'm killing myself in a job that I don't enjoy. I'm stressed out and I'm working right. really hard and I'm getting, you know, this level of tax on it when I could, you know, do my own business. You know, I spent the, the lockdown learning new skills. I want to start my own business. I want to do this. I want to do that. Why would they go back to that crazy stressful existence with the high taxation when they can do their, you know, be their own boss and things like that. So of course, not everyone thinks like that. Not everyone has the same uh, mindset. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Some people enjoy their job. And as I always say, if you enjoy your job, great that, you know, you've, you've made it because you're in a job you enjoy, stick with it. But a lot of people are unhappy. And that's another reason why you're seeing this mass migration out of the job market. And I said, you know, way back, you know, unemployment isn't going to drop, Like they're saying, yeah, it's going to drop from six to 3%. I've said from day one, it won't because of unemployment scarring and the mass movement of, of jobs. And this is what they still can't see, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, man. What a, what a situation we're in. Um, the last topic I'll jump into would be, um, so coming from the UK now in the US, you said you've traveled to 65 different countries. Um, we talked about the, the problems in the, in the market, the job markets, the scarring. Um, we're also in a different time. The internet has now allowed us to do things like we're doing right now. So um, being that you're an international man traveling around the world, still running your businesses, et cetera, um, what kind of advice would you give to people that uh, 
that are seeing this change, this great reset agenda, all these things happening. They're worried about it. Like, and, and how do they navigate that? Should they start traveling, start thinking about moving somewhere? Should they start learning new skills that could be done anywhere in the world? Like what kind of advice would you have for that? Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you an extreme example and then I'll give you a more realistic example. So if you want an extreme example and you are, you know, you want to plan for the worst case, I wouldn't be in the city. I would be selling up and I'd be moving more rurally, 100%. I'd be looking at how you can make sure you've got your own water source if there are cyber attacks on, you know, the water and all this sort of things. Because you've seen this in other countries where, you know, a nuclear power station has gone out or something like that. You can't pump water. You can't do all these things. People had to leave the areas. You know, they became migrants in a way from their own um, economic migrants from their own areas. So I'd be planning for things like this. I'd be planning for food. I think it's crazy when people um, attack preppers, right? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a meme. It's a joke at the moment. Everyone attacks preppers. They say, oh, they're crazy and all this over the last few years. Human beings have been preppers for thousands of years. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> and it's only in the last 30 years that they've stopped because they could go to the grocery store. They can get something like bang on demand. Yeah. What The wake up call for me was in March. 2020 when I was in uh, Spain and I got locked down in an apartment. I had no food. I had just some crackers. Me and my wife were like, oh my goodness. We went out. The police brought me back in the police car to the apartment. Yes, that actually happened. Wow. I wasn't allowed to go to the supermarket. Then I went the next day. I snuck out again because <laughs> who cares? I snuck out. You're, I went to the starving. supermarket. Yeah. And I didn't know that in Spain, supermarkets are closed on a Sunday. So nice. here we were, and I actually, and I don't mind even saying this, I had to knock on people's doors for food, right? Wow. Because what else are you going to do? You know, this is me as well. So if it can happen to me, it can happen yeah. to anyone. And yeah. then I got back to the UK and uh, not, not too far away from where my old house was, maybe five, 10 miles away, the largest supermarket in Europe. I went in there. I made a video about this. You can see it on my channel. It was stripped. The Mm. shelves were empty. There was nothing. You could buy chocolate and wine and stuff like that, but you can't really live on chocolate and wine, although some people do, I'm I'm sure. (laughs) So this is the sort of extreme example. Make sure you've got food. Make sure you've got water. Like for us, as I I mentioned, um, like our whole family, we sold up in California. We lived in Camarillo, which is in Ventura County. We sold up. The whole family's moved to... um, like the closest city is Lexington, if you want to say that in Kentucky, um, you know, that's where all the horse racing and things like that. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I just think, why didn't we all do this before where you get twice the size of house for your money, you know, than you could in, in California. And it's just a really nice standard of living, nice community where your neighbors talk to one another, you know, it's not like, you know, like that in California, yeah. a lot of the times, yeah. So that's an extreme example. Just make sure that you've got everything set up. We've definitely done that, taking care of this. But at the same time, we still have a a, a small home in the UK that we're going to keep. We're not going to sell that home. Okay, so we've got got a backup plan. Now, that's an example for me, and it's an extreme example. But for a lot of people, they're they're listening and saying, look, I haven't got that sort of money. I can't do that sort of thing. I would say if you can do your job remotely, I would definitely move. I don't think I would stay in the city. 
even if some things start to come back, like restaurants we, we mentioned have, have started to come back, even if everything starts to come back, it's going to take years for it to recover. You know, right. And that's assuming we don't have a financial crisis, a crash in the market. Then you're really stuck because then you'd be stuck in the city where you think it was going to recover and you can't sell your house because there was this big crash in the markets and it's affected the housing market and people haven't got jobs and they can't buy a new home and everything else. So I think, you know, and if you don't enjoy your job right now, this is another thing, and you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, I think now's the perfect time to give it a try. What have you got to lose, right. um, really? So I think that's, a, that's another thing. But just stick with, you know, bring your budgets down. Don't over, over, overspend. One thing I learned when I, when I first got, got married to my wife, who's, who's American, is meeting a lot of American people, getting into the culture, is very different from a European mindset. So in Europe, people save a lot of their money. You know, you have an excess most months, uh, even if it's a small excess or you break even. What I discovered is that the average American, you know, spends everything and sometimes they, they spend more like on the credit cards and right. they get you know, loans and they max everything out with monthly payments. And yeah, it's a clever financial system when times are good, but when times are bad, it's very, very dangerous. So right. I'd start looking at that as well. Budgets, bring those budgets down. And um, see if you, and especially if you can work remotely, definitely I would move. I wouldn't stay in an expensive place where, you know, your house has gone up massively in value. I'd look to sell it, move a little more rurally if, if possible, get a really strong internet connection. And you're going to have a much better standard of living, in my opinion, especially over the next few years. And then, you know, if things come back in a few years time, you can always move back, yeah. you know, you're not a tree. You're not fixed to one location. You can always sell your property and move back. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, uh, I read that uh, uh, four hour work week, you know, whatever, 12, 12 years ago, whenever that came out, uh, one of the points that he made was that um, nothing is irreversible. <laughs> you know, nothing's irreversible. When we moved from California to Puerto Rico and uh, everyone thinks that's so crazy, but it's like, we can just move back. <laughs> mm. We can just move back. So anyway, to your point, uh, that's, yeah, you're not a tree. You can just move. So uh, I love that. And so I wanted to get that perspective from you. Having been to 65 countries, it's, it's important, especially to your point, uh, you know, in the United States, the culture is a little bit different. And as I travel a bunch, I notice that you see international people traveling a bunch, but a lot of the United States people don't travel that much. And so it's mm. important, important, important for that. But uh, man, with that, I think we'll go ahead and sign it off, wrap it up. I know we covered a lot of topics. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak to us so much. Um, anything, anything else that you want to add or draw attention to people should follow you. Obviously we'll link to your YouTube channel. Anything else? No, I, th I think we covered most things to be honest, Mark. Uh, I hope people got some, some value, um, you know, from, from what we've discussed today. And I just say to everyone, keep an open mind, right? Don't watch as much mainstream media, just try and keep an open mind on most topics. And one of the best lessons I ever learned in humility was that really what we know is 0.00000, and you can keep going, 1% of, of what really exists in this, in this world. Right. So it was, a, it was a good lesson for me to realize that I really know nothing. And people think I know a lot of stuff from all the, the reading and everything I do, but really I, I know nothing. That's, that's the way I, I look at things like that. And when you don't take very strong stances either way on, on positions. And you try and remain neutral with whoever you are, whether they're 
a Democrat, Republican, they love Joe Biden or they, they love Donald Trump, whoever. You know, I try and take a, a very neutral stance with everyone and see. And usually if you do that, you don't have strong opinions and emotional spikes to it. You usually find some common ground with everyone, which is what I personally experience. Now, does everyone experience that with me? Probably not. Um, but um, that, that's one of my sort of key takeaways for, you know, for having more successful relationships for sure. Got it. Ah, good stuff, Neil. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're most welcome, Mark. Take care. Bye. Uh, I'll have these two and hmm, I could add Hans Hermann Hoppe as well. I think those three uh, would be there. I need four. You need four. Uh, I'll add Ferdinand Lips. I've only read one book of his. He's only written one book, I think. Uh, the book is called Gold Wars, and it was highly influential on the Bitcoin standard. Uh, the Bitcoin standard was essentially, uh, to a very large extent, I think it was uh, what Ferdinand Lips would have written if he was uh, 50 years younger. Um, he died in 2000, I think, or in the late 90s. And he was a Swiss banker who worked in Switzerland in banking. And um, he wrote a book on um, gold as money and the history of gold. And he understood the significance of hard money for civilization. He understood it very well and wrote about it very eloquently in that book. And it was enormously influential for me. So I would probably say these four, yeah. Mises, right. Hoppe, uh, Rothbard, and Ferdinand Lips. Nice. All right. Good. I know I caught you off guard with that one, uh, but, uh, but it was, but I was good to hear that. Um, cool. With that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, I know you have that book, the Fiat standard coming out um, really quickly. You were running a Kickstarter. Is that still running or is that over? Yes, it's still running. You can, uh, you can go to my website, safedeen.com slash Kickstarter or safedeen.com slash TFS Fiat standard. And uh, you can pre-order the book right now. It'll be delivered in December, but you can get the draft of the book, the almost complete draft. There's still going to be some editing done, but if you order now, you'll get the draft. So you can read it now in digital format. And then in December, you'll get the physical book, the digital book, and the audio book. And you can get a signed copy of it. On the yes, and you can get a signed copy. And essentially, the signed copy is my way of, um, you know, people like to donate to universities that they like. I'm sort of uh, cutting out the middleman. And, um, you know, if you want to support me working on these books, it takes a lot of time to write these books. And I don't, and I'm publishing, I'm self-publishing them. Um, so instead of going to a publishing house and taking an advance, I'm getting the advance essentially from my readers. So if you buy a signed copy, you get a signed copy and you get listed in the book as one of the supporters of the book. So please do that. Yep. I got a signed copy of the Bitcoin standard. I'm definitely getting a copy of the signed copy of the Fiat standard. So I'm in, I'm going to put the link down below for everybody. I recommend that you go do that. Um, and with that, we'll go ahead and sign it off. Thanks so much, Safety. Thank you so much, Mark. Right. Pleasure. Talking to you. Take care. All right.